Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day good. Phone charge to 100% good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. Well, welcome to the show, everybody. I'm here with Aaron Levy, who's the founder and CEO of Box. And he's also probably the wittiest person in Silicon Valley, which actually probably isn't a great low title. Bar, low bar. Low for, bar. For the, uh, for the nerds out in uh, the valley. <laughs> well, Aaron, thanks for joining us. This is great. So let's talk quick for people who might not know about Box. Sure. It's, it's evolved a lot. What is the focus today? Yeah. So uh, actually, the focus has been the, the same for almost the past decade. We started as a, a product uh, aimed at really kind of consumers and small businesses, and we wanted to provide a way for people to be able to share their files and be able to collaborate from anywhere. And then we pivoted the company to focusing on the enterprise uh, in about 2007. So for the past decade, what we've been doing is helping businesses be able to secure and manage and organize and collaborate around all of their most important documents and data. So we work with about 72,000 uh, companies globally and about uh, over 60% of the Fortune 500. So companies like General Electric, Eli Lilly, Procter & Gamble, Disney, and, uh, and many others use Box to be able to share and manage all of their kind of corporate information. And you're a young guy. It seems like, when did you start the company? How old were you? Uh, I was 19 when we, when we started and, um, and have uh, grayed a lot since then. So, so it's, been a, it's been a long road. And that seems for a 19-year-old like kind of a, a wonky business to start and get into. <laughs> what were you thinking? How did you get into this? Every, you don't think that every 19-year-old just really wants to build enterprise software for the rest of their That's life? That's what they want to do, beer and yeah. enterprise software. That's uh, the whole thing. <laughs> well, uh, uh, so there wasn't as much beer. I was less of the partying circuit in, in, uh, in college and uh, with with some free time, you know, tried lots of different startup ideas, and the one that ultimately worked was a problem that I was running into personally between college and an internship that I had. It was just way too hard to share files. So I called up a, a couple of friends and tried to convince them to, to do this with me, and then ultimately we uh, we all dropped out of college and moved to the Bay Area from, from where we were all uh, situated and then kind of built up the company. But it was just born out of our own frustration of you had USB thumb drives, you had FTP sites, you had email systems that you had to send files through and it was all too complicated. And in 2005, we, we thought there was a better way where people could be able to, to manage their, their data. So it wasn't until a couple of years later that we really got boring and focused entirely on the enterprise market. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur and start stuff or did you go to college kind of an open mind seeing what's going on? Uh, no, I mean, in throughout middle school and high school, started lots of different projects with friends. Um, ultimately, the, the co-founders of Box um, were people that I collaborated on uh, lots of ideas with. We all grew up together in the same, uh, we all went to middle school and, and high school together. So we ultimately kind of re, we, we came back together to, to build the company. What were the projects you used to do when you were like selling, selling candy, selling jawbreakers for uh, markups? Uh, that was, uh, we, we kind of quickly moved beyond that one. Okay, um, but you pivoted uh, off that. We pivoted off that quickly. It wasn't very scalable, but, um, we uh, we had just really bad startup ideas. So uh, we, we had a search engine that um, uh, was called Zazap, and it was the fastest search engine on the internet besides Google. 
Um, and so, uh, so that didn't really take <laughs> off. Um, but I've heard worse names. Yeah. No, the name was fine. We're, we're, I've always been okay at branding. Um, there was a, uh, an online real estate service that we tried to build a, uh, an events and uh, kind of uh, entertainment website in college to kind of let you know what was going on around you. So a lot of different startup ideas, things that ultimately, you know, other people uh, pursued and, and became way more successful. But uh, the, the thing that, that, that we ultimately made successful was, was just the idea that you wanted to be able to have access to all of your data in the cloud and be able to get to it from anywhere. And you're one of the rare CEOs who actually took their startup public recently. Everyone's been staying private, you know, hiding behind series G's and whatever you want to say. <laughs> we had those. You had those. Yeah. What was, um, tell me a little bit about the, the, the process of going public and the thinking and, and how that has changed. If anything, has it changed the way you do business? Yeah, well, so for us, it was a, um, it, unfortunately, it was a prolonged process. So we, we filed to go public and then, you know, kind of the market changed on us. So we ultimately stayed private for a little bit longer than expected. And then we went public in the beginning of 2015. So it's been now a little over two years. And, you know, I think we've dealt with everything that, that any public company deals with. The stock has gone up, it's gone down, it's, it's, it's gone up again, it's gone down again, it's gone up. And, <laughs> uh, and we, we, we deal with, with all the standard kind of, um, you know, volatility that, that you deal with in, in a public uh, company or a public market. Uh, but what we've benefited from is because we're uh, we, because we build and sell enterprise software. A lot of our customers actually appreciate the fact that we're public. They mm-hmm. want to know that they're working with software uh, and a software company that's going to be long term viable and going to be sustainable. And so by being public, we can open up our financials and be able to expose that to uh, to, to the customer. It's obviously great for employees because they know that you know the valuation of the company is actually what you know the market says mm-hmm. it is, and, and they have a tradable security that they uh, that they're able to to get. So for us and our business, it's been a it's been a great experience. You mentioned the volatile uh, stock prices. Are you a kind of guy that you know checks every thirty seconds on their on Just their app or auto notifications it, on every trade, yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, no, or is it more of a kind of heads down and you know just let the the CFO or whatever worry about that kind of stuff? We have a very long term perspective on the business and and what we're building. We've been doing this now for twelve years. You know, hopefully we'd be we'll be doing this for decades to come. So I think that gives us a unique. Um, sort of view into what we what what our long term strategy looks like, and the fact that that the daily stock price is not necessarily an indicator of how we're doing against that long term trajectory or, or long term path. It is meaningful to look at it over a longer period of time. You want to make sure that at least on a quarterly or annual basis that your strategy is showing up as as uh, as Wall Street understanding what you're doing and that the performance of the business is reflected in the stock price. And how do you kind of balance that? Yeah, you need to hit those quarter marks. But at the same time, this is you know technology. You need to be you know gutsy. You have to think long term. You got to you know build long term vision. How do you kind of keep the bankers happy, but also keep the competition at bay? Yeah, I mean this is uh, this is I think the, the the struggle of any public company, whether you're really big or, or relatively small. At any given time, we are making trade offs that uh, are around investment decisions that will either impact the near term financial profile of the business and our near term performance versus versus the long term. And I think that the way we think that through is, is there's a baseline that we have to achieve, which is our commitment to Wall Street. It's our guidance and the things that we set as expectations. And, uh, and then we're going to invest like hell to make sure that, that we're also doing things that are going to allow us to stay very competitive over the long run. And what I think tends to happen is as you get bigger and bigger, the 
your your organization wants to do the more predictable thing, the more conservative thing. The tendency of the organization is to wait for there to be a lot of data to suggest what decision you should make. Mm -hmm. And what we've learned as a startup and, and by being a startup is some of the best decisions are when you make a decision with very little data and you're going off of a gut instinct about what you think the future is going to look like. And so the, the tendency that we have to fight as we scale is how do you still keep that, that gut instinct yeah. alive in a world where Wall Street wants you to be very predictable, where inherently some decisions that you make are going to be much more conservative. And so that's my job as a founder and CEO is to make sure that we're still making those big bets when there isn't necessarily a lot of data. Because by the time there's a lot of data, you won't be the only one making that big bet. And you won't then be ahead of the curve. And our customers pay us to always stay ahead of the curve from an innovation standpoint. Yeah. Like, I mean, you're, you say startup, but you're a public company. So yeah. I guess you're maybe not a startup anymore. But how do you act like a mature corporation but think like a startup? Yeah, I mean, uh, so uh, it used to be that, that, you know, our office was, we had like a slide and everything, and then we moved buildings. We actually had to get rid of the slide, unfortunately, so we still have to do a lot of things. Is that, that in your apartment now? Um, actually, we sliced up the slide, and it's in lots of little pieces, and it's kind of art, um, like, like contemporary art throughout the building. So it was a, <laughs> a metaphor for moving on from our startup days uh, by cutting up our slide. And you recycled, that's good. But we have scooters, so we didn't, we didn't lose that part of our, our culture. But I think what you have to do is you have to create the permission of the organization, you know, to some extent, things, to be able to move quickly, to be able to make decisions quickly, to give people the authority and autonomy so they can actually go in and innovate and not not necessarily, quote unquote, punish people that, that make the wrong decision or make the wrong move because they, they operated on too limited of, amount of data. Because those are the things that we want our colleagues to be doing all the time is we mm -hmm. want them to be moving quickly. And in some cases, that's going to be relying on their judgment to make a decision as opposed to having all of the available data to make that decision. And so what we try and do is reflect on, we, we, we have an organization where we want to learn from the mistakes that we make, but at the same time, we want people making mistakes. We want people to be kind of pushing the boundaries of what we do today. And so you can't uh, disincentivize people from making those, those mm -hmm. calls and, and being able to, to move quickly. And you guys are a cloud company. Correct. And it's, you know, cloud has been such a buzzword over the past, you know, decade and major players are in there. I mean, Microsoft, you got Amazon, you have Salesforce. How did you guys as a startup find a niche? Yeah. And then how did you avoid not getting like crushed by someone like Microsoft or someone like, you know, Salesforce? Yeah. I mean, so for us, uh, we started the company before the term cloud even was, was that popular. We didn't think about it as cloud. We just said, Hey, it's the internet. Right. And, and did you invent the word cloud. We, uh, I mean, I'm happy for, for us <laughs> to take you know, credit for that. It would not be accurate to say that, but, uh, what we did is, is we sort of said, okay, this internet thing is, is super popular. Everyone's going to be on the internet. Everyone's going to have, we, we had, um, in our original business plan and business prospectus, we had sort of predictions about the future. And just to show you how much foresight we had, we, we predicted that in the future, everybody on the planet was going to be working on blackberries and they would want <laughs> access to their information from anywhere. And so, so we sort of saw that, that okay, the internet is, is growing. Internet's getting faster. We're going to work from anywhere on our Blackberries, but fortunately a better device eventually came around. And we're going to want to be able to have access to our information from anywhere. And that was the original insight. And so thus was born our kind of cloud strategy and, and cloud platform. The way that we were able to stay competitive against Microsoft and Salesforce and other companies was by focusing deeply on just the space of, of content. Mm -hmm. And all we do is, and our only mission is to make it so you can get access to and you can share your most important business information with anyone at any time in a very secure way in any size organization. And so it turns out that that actually is a, a massive market. It's a multi-tens of billions of dollar market when you look at how much was spent in the on-premises sort of days mm -hmm. of, of storage infrastructure and document management software. So our job with, with our platform was just to move that to the cloud. And it, it just turned out that Microsoft and 
Oracle and EMC and other gigantic companies didn't pay enough attention to just that category. That let us create an opportunity to build a, a best of breed platform in a niche mm-hmm. that we happened to feel was way bigger than what the rest of the market believed. And, and then that gave us a head start to be able to build off of and, and, you know, until today. And you guys launched in 2005. Yeah. And that was right around the time I feel there was you know, kind of the shiny objects of the internet. Yeah. You know, we're starting to bubble up mainstream, whether it's Facebook and social networking, gaming, YouTube. Yep. Like, these were all starting to hit. Yep. Did you guys want to maybe, you know, you're smart, enterprising, you know, 19-year-olds. Did you want to think about branching into something more consumer and, and flashy or you like, but you stayed head down on kind of lucrative but boring ass yeah. enterprise software? Actually, our story was we started as a consumer product. We started in the, in the space that we thought was going to be flashy and, mm-hmm. and exciting and uh, it actually took, um, especially one of my co-founders, to convince me that the really sexy, flashy thing was going to be a complete sort of demise of the business. Mm-hmm. And that in the consumer space, Google, Apple, Microsoft, they were going to give away infinite amount of, an infinite amount of storage to consumers. And there was going to be no viable business as an independent company going after the consumer space. And so despite us initially wanting to really you know, pursue that consumer opportunity, we, we couldn't we just couldn't make the math work of how you would survive as an independent company. And then we went through a multi sort of month process of indoctrinating ourselves in enterprise software and, and sort of deciding that that was the only path that we could pursue. And, and what we initially did was we were really concerned that that was going to lead us down to being a really boring company. And what we decided was if we, if we pursue the enterprise market, we would do so with a, a set of consumer ethos. And in terms of how we design our software, in terms of the culture of our business, in terms of the speed at which we innovate, in terms of how we work with customers and clients, we would look way more like a consumer technology company, but we would just happen to sell to enterprises. An enterprise requires a pretty serious beefed up sales force. Yeah. How did you start that from scratch? Yeah. So uh, we- And with no, exp- like no experience yeah. in that. Yeah, so uh, really early on, we, we brought in uh, uh, initially a consultant, and then we ultimately hired a, uh, a head of sales. And uh, and and that 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 guy had he had white hair, and and uh, and he sort of could represent the face of the the company. And he helped build the initial entire sales team, and, and mm-hmm. kind of help us go after this market. In fact, very initially, when when we were you know twenty one, twenty two, they didn't even let me in front of customers because it wasn't going to be a good way to, to pitch you know a large enterprise by throwing these 22-year-olds at, at the... Uh, well, your hair is getting whiter these days. It so. is. It's, it's, uh, it's getting almost as, as white as, as our initial sales guy. So initially, we were in this renovated garage, and we had a sales team, and, and they, were, they were calling on small businesses, and then they were calling on medium-sized companies. And then one day, Procter & Gamble actually decided to deploy Box to over 10,000 employees. And that mm-hmm. was sort wow. of the big moment for us. Mm-hmm. And that was now about seven years ago. And that was like the big breakthrough, which was that we thought that every enterprise on the planet was going to need a solution like Box. And it was either going to be us or somebody else. And so we decided to really kind of turn on the gas at that point. And, um, and that's where, you know, I think we're most known for burning lots of money because what we were doing was building a gigantic sales force and a, a gigantic sales team mm-hmm. to be able to go after this opportunity on a global basis. Growing up or just even building the company, did you have any business heroes or people you looked at to guide you? Yeah, I mean, so I grew up in Seattle, and we had the sort of advantage of being surrounded on one side from from Amazon and on the other side from Microsoft. And, and, so, you, had, and you had Pearl Jam. 
and we had Pearl Jam, uh, and we had Nirvana, and we we so it was like grunge plus Amazon plus Microsoft and Costco. You're all set, and lots of large bulk orders of Kirkland Signature products and, <laughs> and pizza. So it was it was a really great environment. And um, but you said you had Microsoft on one side and Amazon on the other. We had these two gigantic tech companies that that in the '90s were you know basically the kings of the tech industry at that time. If you really think about it, the '90s was really almost owned by by the Seattle ecosystem to some extent, and other than sort of Cisco and a couple others in, in the in the Bay Area. And so uh, we grew up with technology around us. So Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Paul Allen um, were, were people that, that, you know, I learned from growing up. And then mm-hmm. as as we built our company, you know, I was fortunate to, to, you know, be able to have mentors like Mark Benioff and um, and other folks that, that have helped us sort of navigate the business over time as we as we scaled. Do you ever meet uh, Bezos or Gates in another another world? This world as well, but yes, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, have not, not, I have not yet met them in another world. But but this one, uh, uh, yep, have been able to, to run into them. Is that weird? Kind of bumping into these people of your childhood there it's kind of like playing against the player you uh you watched on tv kind of thing fortunately i've been i've met them in context where we're not playing against them and okay, and we've, we've been able to, to work together but it's i mean it's cool i mean you know it's it's definitely you know exciting to to be able to meet those those guys when you were building your company and even now as a ceo you know what you were doing was you know high tech very i guess very I don't know if it's introverted or kind of, you know, heads down, you know, coding and building. Now you have to be the face of a company and you have to be the cheerleader and you have to mm-hmm. go out there, do conferences, do interviews like these. Yep. Was that natural for you? Is that a challenge? How do you kind of be the, the front man of a company, but then also, you know, kind of guide the strategy? I think I, I spend most of my time on either the product or with customers or with partners. So, so the vast majority of the time is, is spent on, on some of the high leverage strategic areas uh, that, that we work on. You know, only a, only a small percentage of the time is is at our conferences and mm-hmm. at, at various events. So, you know, I think it's come a, I think a bit naturally just because it, it's just a way of conveying what we're we're doing. But but yeah, I mean, fortunately, most of the time is is spent you know right in Redwood City and just getting on a whiteboard and designing what we think the future of software is going to look like for our industry. And and that's where where I get to spend most of my time. You know, you got into kind of the startup world yeah. before it was popular, before it was sexy. Now I feel like founders are the uh, the new rock stars or the new you know movie stars. What is? Th- I wouldn't go that far, but, that but far? Uh, in yeah. some circles, for you know, nerdy tech journals like in me, in a couple yeah. of zip codes, it's uh, that might be the case. Is that still the case? Is that fading in terms of attention and press? I feel like we're all you had the unicorn counter out, you know, two years ago. Now it's kind of falling back to earth. Is it? How is the culture changed at all? I think I think what what the culture of the valley is, we're coming back to reality mm-hmm. uh, to some extent. Where I think there's a reflection that that valuations uh, got way ahead of the reality of where a lot of companies were. And that, that was unhealthy for a number of reasons. It was unhealthy because it, uh, in some cases, it, it meant that there wouldn't be liquidity for employees or investors anywhere near the valuation that, that people thought. It was unhealthy because it can sometimes cause your business to run in, in ways that, um, that, that are maybe too quick uh, for, for where your actual product or, or business is ready for. Mm-hmm. So I think we have seen a, a, a bit more of a tempering of the, of the valuations, which then causes things to, to feel like it's a little bit more closer to reality as yeah. opposed to, to some of the euphoria that, that may have been you know, going on a couple of years ago. And you know, almost to the extent where you, know, you would never hear a startup say, I'm a unicorn or, or we have a unicorn valuation. That's no longer a sort of a, a, a signal of, of any kind of a badge of, of pride or anything. Yeah. But at the same time, I think there's a tremendous amount of optimism and excitement for just the amount of innovation that's still left to, to happen. And what's, what's really cool is I think we're at a point where, so when, when we started Box, if you were in a software, if you were starting a software company, you would think through a very narrow lens of what you could build. 
mm-hmm. right? You, you basically built websites or web applications that basically looked like just better versions of technology that had already come before. Now what we're seeing is software can go be applied to any industry. It can be applied to life sciences. It can be applied to healthcare. It can be applied to transportation. It can be applied to the government. And so what you're seeing is this renaissance of, of innovation that we're taking software principles and literally software engineering and applying it to domains that have never been impacted by technology, mm-hmm. never been impacted by, by software before. And so at, you know, at the same time where I think we're coming back to earth in, in terms of valuations, there's never been a greater time to be building technology because of the amount of industries that can be transformed by technology and because of the amount of opportunity that, that's still out there. So, so I think that um, we don't want the atmosphere to, to be about exactly, being yeah. rock stars or, or movie stars or whatever. You want it to be about fundamental breakthroughs and innovation and being able to go and, and transform how you know, markets operate. And, uh, and I think we're moving more back to that mode. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. We've already talked about the importance of letting your customers check out and pay with their preferred method. Let's break it down with a specific example. There are more than 200 million people who use PayPal. That's a whole lot of people. And if you don't accept PayPal on your site, that's 200 million missed opportunities. Why miss out on that? Braintree makes it simple to offer PayPal and almost every other way to pay at checkout. Braintree. Rethink Payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash forms. I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed. Unscripted. Unscripted. Yeah, let's go with that. A marriage made in heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests. David Copperfield, Neil LaBute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain Wilson, the first guest. You are no, the very first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. Stephen Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. And you mentioned before that when you were starting Box you guys predicted that, rightfully so, that everyone would be on the internet, whether, you know, BlackBerry, not so much, but on phones, just we live in, in this world now. What are your bold predictions for where we're heading with technology and society? I should note, I mean, it wasn't that bold of a prediction a small 12 years ago yeah. to, to, uh, to predict that people would be using the internet. But, um, and in fact, we actually got one more thing wrong. We thought everybody would be working at cyber cafes. So, uh, um, yeah. so that's that, like very Europe, <laughs> very Europe, uh, 1997. We thought Blackberries and cyber cafes are the future of work. Um, there's now almost too many major fundamental tech trends to, to even count. I mean, and so what we're going to see is the confluence of a number of these trends begin to, to change you know, industries in pretty fundamental ways. But if you take quantum computing, mm-hmm. you take robotics, you take artificial intelligence, you take synthetic biology, you take the fact that, that three, four, five billion people might be on the internet or be on mobile phones, every single industry is going to be completely altered. So um, almost every single thing about how the world works today, whether it's how we experience healthcare or how drugs are discovered and, and, um, and, and diseases are, um, are, are discovered, to how we, um, how we do our banking, to how we you know, trade on, on stocks, 
uh, to how we interact with the government. Every mm-hmm. single one of these things is going to be driven by by digital experiences in some fundamental way. And we think that you know some of the, the more profound impacts will be driven by artificial intelligence, machine learning, where technology gets smarter and faster and we start to do a little bit less of the the, the, the work that computers can do in a way better or smarter or faster way. And then we start to, to work on things that humans are uniquely capable of doing, which, uh, which will mean interacting more uh, with other humans. So ironically, in a world of, of, of robotics and automation, uh, humans are going to be, and human interaction is going to be more important than ever before. Um, and I think that's, that's you know, one, one thing that's going to dramatically impact the enterprise and enterprise software is, uh, is our software is going to be much smarter. And it's going to fundamentally mm-hmm. change the way that, that people work within an organization. If AI works the way we think it is, what kind of tasks and jobs are going to are going to vanish, or what kind of problems are going to be take care of themselves? Yeah, I think you. I mean, you have the classic ones that we're already seeing, so trucking or or you know uh, taxing or um, you know in, in some areas of of retail with robotics and, and warehouses. So that's mm-hmm. that's one area that I think will be um, uh, impacted. So full self driving everything. Yes, and it will be probably still uh, you know a couple of decades before yeah. before it really ripples through. Um, the actual jobs in those industries, because it, for the, at least the, the next decade, you're probably still going to have um, humans that are ensuring the safety of these devices mm-hmm. and, and of these these uh, these robotic platforms. So, so I don't think it's going to you know necessarily result in in discrete job destruction in the near term, but that, that's an area that that you know could be long term impacted. And then you have a bunch of of tasks that that humans are doing today in more knowledge worker environments or more higher skilled areas that computers are going to be either better at or can enable us to do better. And so if you think about the, you know, the classic example is the doctor or the radiologist where you could have artificial intelligence better inform them as to what a disease is or what the treatment should be or what the, you know, that particular, um, you know, issue is that, that that patient is dealing with. In those areas, we don't think that's about replacing a job mm-hmm. or, or destroying a job. It's actually making, you know, people far more effective. And, uh, and that will mean saving more lives. That will mean getting better treatments uh, for patients. That will mean better experiences, um, you know, ultimately over the near and, and long run. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of tasks that we're doing today as humans that computers can enable us to do much more effectively, all the way even into a knowledge worker environment. If we look at just our office environments and how much time we spend emailing each other back and forth to get meetings scheduled or yeah. to find specific uh, pieces of information, all of that's going to be completely automated. So what's going to happen is not that we're going to spend less time working because capitalism almost always ensures that, that we're going to want to stay more competitive than, our, than the, the person next to us. And so it's not that we're going to spend less time working. It's going to be that we spend less time working on things that, that are redundant to, to what technology can do. And that's going to allow us to be more innovative, more creative, work more with other people. And we think that's where a lot of our time is going to be spent. Yeah, maybe even an AI could help me ask you smarter questions and put on a better show I, I mean there'll be augmentation of podcasts in the future through through ai so i, I think that that um you know there's a lot of use cases in, including in, you know interviewing so <laughs> so uh i you know good luck with that how many um employees do you guys have now 1500 1500 how is going from a garage a yeah. few, uh, you know a decade ago to you know cross country 1500 employees how do you manage all that your debt like how do you manage that and what's like a typical uh levy day Typical levy day. So um, I generally wake up at around uh, 9.30 or 10 a.m., and you'll find out why soon, but, okay. uh, but generally wake up at 9.30 or 10. Hangovers? Uh, no hangovers. So it's not uh, an alcohol-driven uh, uh, wake-up time. Check my emails for five or 10 minutes, get in the shower, go to, go to work, basically do like six to eight hours of meetings, just back-to-back meetings, you know, sort of 30-minute slots of, mm-hmm. of, of time. 
generally will, I take a nap um, at around sort of 6.30 or 7-ish, uh, usually every night. Do you have a George Costanza desk where you can sleep underneath? Um, it's, uh, it's not that elaborate. Uh, I have a room that has a, has a, uh, a couch in it, and okay. so, um, so I just get to go to that room that, that's fairly quiet. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, take a nap, 20, 25 minutes, go eat food. We have dinner you know, served in the building. Um, and then uh, for the next sort of four or five hours, I'm, I'm doing more work around catching up on emails, sort of thinking about the future, you know, sort of maybe doing one-off meetings on, on strategy and, mm-hmm. and kind of what we need to do, and then eventually go home around 1.30 or 2 a.m., uh, and, then, and then sort of the cycle repeats. So my nights are pretty long, yeah. uh, but then the, but I, I get to wake up pretty late, so it's not that I get like three hours of sleep or something. Has that been the way you've always, like, yeah. you've always been like a night guy? Yeah. Do you ever do anything for fun? Um, I've, I see movies. And I read books, very entertaining nonfiction books about mm. business strategy. Oh, terrific. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff you'd probably love. Rec- recommend a few of the you know, SaaS model. Um, I don't know. There's great SaaS model books. Um, <laughs> you said you have eight hours of meetings. Yeah. Do you keep them like super like regimented, like no small talk, like boom, 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 next? No. 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 In fact, actually, my meetings are probably most prone to go on tangents of any meeting in the, in the, in the company. Is that, a, is that good for creativity? Not necessarily. It's sort of the only way I know how to, to function is to kind of wander around until we come up with something. I'm generally late to every, every meeting, and then we, we kind of meander for a little bit, and then we ultimately find that hopefully the key insight of, of what we're talking about, and then that becomes the, the kind of focal point. But uh, I'm not good with agendas. What tips would you give um, you know, would-be founders, would-be entrepreneurs, or just people at a startup? The classic things that I think any, any small startup uh, needs to pay attention to is first and foremost, you know, team. The team that you're surrounded by is going to be everything about, about whether you succeed or fail. So the team dynamic, the, the culture of the organization, the, the way you, you put you know, people together is, is going to drive all of the, the subsequent decisions you make and the execution that you, that you, that you are able to deliver. I think that uh, being very, very clear on your, your North Star and your mission mm-hmm. and to every extent possible, not deviating from that. And so, especially in the enterprise market, you will get constant feedback from customers that are asking you to do things that, that make no sense for your strategy. Yeah. And the companies that have the least likelihood of success are those that basically go in and solve for all of those requests that they're getting because they're, they're not clear on what their North Star is and where, what they're trying to build over the long run. And then ultimately, that you then end up with this sort of Frankenstein product or technology that, that's not possible to serve the ultimate mission that you're on. You know, we benefited from both of these things. And then the final thing I would just say is, um, given the pace of technology change happening today, where every single week there is a, a, some major innovation that is going to impact the future of, of technology and startups. Two weeks ago, Google had their cloud conference. There was a whole bunch of new innovations there that are going to be highly impactful to startups. Everything that you do is either going to, um, is either going to mean that, that you're going to experience tailwinds or headwinds for the, huh, the technology environment. Mm-hmm. And so we try and put ourselves in a position where everything can be a, a tailwind for us as opposed to a headwind. So making sure that, that, that you're riding whatever the wave of innovation is as opposed to fighting against it is a, is a fundamental requirement if you're going to be a, a startup that, that succeeds. Hmm. And you are one of the rare tech companies as of late to have gone public. What have you? Um, what lessons have you learned from that? What tips do you have for anyone who, all those people out there who want to take the company public? Yeah, exactly. What, Long what, list of people. Yes. Um, what uh, What were kind of like a few things you learned? Yeah, I mean, good, I or, think good or bad. Over communicate your strategy. Make sure all of your investors are incredibly clear on what you're doing, why you're doing it, and where you're going. 
being highly predictable. So, um, you know, the benefit of being an enterprise software company in the cloud is, is that the revenue is, is, is very predictable. We have um, all, essentially all of our revenue is recurring revenue, which means it's going to show up next year as long as we don't mm-hmm. screw up and, and as long as we don't stop innovating. Um, and, then, and then making sure that you have a culture that is very, very focused on the long term because your stock will, will, will drop. At, at, you know, we, we sometimes will announce earnings and the stock overnight will drop by 9% for, for no obvious reason because mm-hmm. we beat the numbers. So if you don't have a team, if you don't have a company, an organization that's in it for the long, long run and the mission that you're on, then the company's not going to be able to withstand the, the volatility inherent in being a public company. Are those swings in the market predictable? Like, I mean, obviously, you have when you guys have inside knowledge, and when you like, you know, when we report these things. Are the people in, internally, like your CFO, like, oh, the stock's going to pop, the stock's going to drop, or you're surprised, like you think you're going to go up and it goes down? The unpredictability of it is so predictable that we yeah. almost don't even try and take a guess uh, because sometimes this one number that Wall Street wanted to see change was the one thing that we that that we didn't dramatically exceed on mm-hmm. and then that was the one focal point of the earnings call. So I, I think the the lesson is as long as you're focused on the long run, you know, that our for instance our stock is up, you know, something like fifty percent or something in the past six or nine months. Um, and that's just like the same execution that we've been doing for two years, mm-hmm. but it turned out Wall Street started paying more attention to that. So our job, execute for the long run, over communicate and try and be as predictable as possible. You are in a really competitive market. What? <laughs> we are? Who is winning the cloud wars right now? There's two types of wars going on. There's a war in the application space. So mm-hmm. there's a war of the, the various different app ecosystems. So there's Salesforce for CRM. There's Workday for HR. There's Slack for communication. There's Box for content management. Mm-hmm. And then there's a war at the infrastructure layer. And that's Google, Microsoft, IBM, Amazon. And in general, uh, I mean, the math is Amazon is is almost ahead of every other company uh, combined in terms of revenue scale. Wow, okay. At the same time, Google, uh, as, as one example, has in just the past 18 months completely reinvented their entire strategy. And they um, are, are going out uh, in a... Uh, in, the, in one of the most aggressive ways possible from an innovation standpoint, where literally every week or two, they're coming out with a new technology, lowering the price of technology, making something more available to more mm-hmm. developers. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a space where it's not possible to, to um, know who's going to win because of, of the amount of innovation and the pace of innovation that's, that's occurring, as well as what, what's sort of left to come. It would be like guessing the operating system wars for mobile in 2005. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen enough happen yet. And what does this mean for us little consumers? Yeah, well, the little consumers need to, uh, means that, that you're going to get constant innovation. So if you are uh, any user of technology, what you, can get, what you can basically be assured of is that things are going to get faster, cheaper, better, easier to use, mm-hmm. and you're going to be able to do everything you want with your data. So just even taken as an example, if you're an Android user right now, I don't know the latest stat, but you can basically back up the entirety of all of your photos completely for free. Mm-hmm. And then you can search across all of those photos because Google has machine learning and image recognition technology that lets you search all that data. Imagine going back five or 10 years ago and saying, what if every single photo in your entire personal life is available and searchable from anywhere at any time? That would be unfathomable. So those are the kind of things that now are just becoming sort of status quo for, for mm-hmm. technology today. Um, so everything that we like about technology is, is hopefully going to get better, um, with the one uh, caveat being that, that security is going to be far more important than ever mm-hmm. before. So the way that we, we secure our data and the hygiene around how we use technology is going to become increasingly important. And quick jump from the cloud wars to politics. Yes. I mean, you've been very outspoken. Natural segue. Natural segue, yes. 
Um, that's why I'm speaking why, of war. I need some AI. Yeah, speaking of war, that's why I need AI to do this for me. Um, <laughs> you know, talking about politics, you've been yeah. very outspoken about the Trump administration. Sure. What is kind of the role of a CEO, um, or public or not, to speak up yeah. against against or for uh, politics? When when do you jump in? When do you stay out? What's kind of the appropriate role? Well, I think that that um, at this stage, politics and and business are almost inseparable. And um, maybe that wasn't the case 10, 20, 30 years ago, but it is fundamentally the case today. Um, and uh, specifically, policy is, uh, is, is what is inseparable from, from business. Um, as a technology company, there's a lot of policies that the federal or, or local governments are responsible for mm-hmm. that impact our ability to succeed or fail over the long run. Whether that's immigration policy, whether that's encryption policy, whether that's digital regulation, whether that's things like educational education policy with STEM education, these things are going to be the fundamental drivers to whether or not we have a business or we have a thriving economy in 10, 15, 20 years from now. So there's no way to stay out of politics. There's no way to stay out of the, the policy discussion. And depending on the severity of the issue is sort of how you have to decide how aggressively do you get involved. Mm -hmm. Something like the immigration executive order was so egregious in its lack of rational policy that you saw such a rapid response and such a consistent response from technology companies because of how damaging the policy was going to be either to employees or to customers or our Mm -hmm. communities or the brand of the country globally. And so that's why you saw such a a rapid response that was was incredibly uniform across the entire industry. That won't be the case for every specific issue because companies are going to interact with or deal with with issues in different ways. But I think what, what we're certainly looking for is much more clarity from the administration on how they view some of these fundamental technology issues, Mm -hmm. whether it's immigration, where we have a massive lack of talent that we need to be able to get the world's best and brightest into our country and into Silicon Valley, whether it's STEM education, where if we don't start training up our future, uh, the future student, the students that are, that are going to be the future workers, um, how do we ensure that they all have access to, to science education, no matter where they are in the country or encryption policy or privacy policy. These things are not just drivers to today's tech industry, but they're going to be drivers for the future economy no matter what industry you're in. So whether you're an automotive manufacturer, whether you're a pharmaceutical maker, whether you're a retailer, the decisions that are made around these tech policy issues are going to be fundamental to your mm-hmm. long-term competitiveness. And we need more clarity from the administration on how they see these issues and how they see that they're going to play out. Because right now, we don't have a, a, a sort of North Star for where the government wants to take these various regulations mm-hmm. and these various issues. How do you interact and communicate all these, these feelings with the government and yeah. keep, it, keep it business, not keep it emotional? This is a particularly emotionally charged presidency mm-hmm. uh, because of some of the personalities at play. And we were opposing of multiple things under the Obama administration, but mm-hmm. it was all around policy. It was all around uh, how the government in, in, in one case was interacting with the technology sector around data privacy. So that mm-hmm. was during the Snowden revelations. But the, the administration uh, was very, very thoughtful, very rational on dealing with that issue and, and weighing the consequences of data privacy mm-hmm. versus, the, um, uh, versus the national security interests. The challenge that we have in this current administration is it's not clear who's making those trade-offs. It's not clear what the process or approach is for being thoughtful about these, these challenges of these issues. So it's a much more emotionally charged environment. And I think it's, 
it's you know any leader's responsibility, business or political, to try and keep things focused on the policy, mm-hmm. keep things focused on the actual decision at, ha- at hand, as opposed to you know attacking the person or attacking the um, the individual directly. And, and certainly, we we do our job to make sure that we're focused on the policy. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I've done is is I joined um, a group called TechNet. It's a um, it's a small sort of uh, policy advocacy group from Silicon Valley. The founding team uh, that, that built this group is John Chambers, mm-hmm. obviously the, the CEO for many years at Cisco. John door from Kleiner Perkins, um, uh, Saffir Katz from Oracle, the GCs of, of uh, Microsoft, Google, and, and Apple. Uh, so this is a, 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 a council that basically um, you know, tries to go and educate Washington broadly mm-hmm. on major technology issues. So, so we joined up with, with that group to make sure that we're, we're driving uh, our, these interests forward. How has internally and emotionally the election affected your your teammates and have you had all hands or sit downs to kind of explain things and get you said north star like let everyone know where you stand so yes many many times now just in the past Mm -hmm. sort of three or four months and um and i think what's what you know uh, the lesson that we have from this that that we you know will certainly carry forward is you have to be very clear as a company about what you stand for and what are the you know both our organization and our culture within our company as well as what are the things that are going to be uh, incredibly impactful to our ability to succeed in the future. And as long as we're very clear on those things and we don't deviate from what our culture is and what, what policy we need from the country to be able to succeed, then, uh, then our, our employees know what we're going to respond to, mm-hmm. how we're going to respond, how we're going to protect certain kind of minority employees uh, in certain cases, and, and how do we make sure that uh, our entire employee base and even our customer base and, and, and broader ecosystem knows what we're going to stand for. And it was interesting. I mean, we've, we've actually had, for instance, as, as just a, a random aside, we've had a lot of international customers, as an example, appreciate mm-hmm. what we stand for and what we stand up to because they're seeing what's going on in America and they're wondering – who are the companies that I can work with where I'm going to trust that they have my interests at stake mm-hmm. as a global business? And, um, and so it's not just about you know, the domestic U.S. interests that, that are at play. It's, it's any company that works on an international scale or on an international stage is impaired right now by some of the political decisions or mm-hmm. some of the, 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 uh, the policy decisions that are, that are going on. And this is, this is one of the really big challenges of being a global business where we have employees and we have customers all around the world. And we have to make sure that our customers and employees know what we stand for and where we're going to be going. And so we have to over-communicate that internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to make sure everybody knows what, what we're going to stick up for and, and what we're going to be involved in. And that's, that's something that, that we certainly had to do way more than I ever imagined, you know, 10 or 12 years ago when we started the company. Aaron Levy, thank you so <laughs> much for all the time. And thank you. All the hitting all the topics. I appreciate it. Every topic. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Clay Smith, host of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the podcast for book lovers interested in interviews with best-selling authors, insider scoop on the hottest releases, reading ideas for book clubs and bibliophiles, and even tips about which books to skip altogether. So be sure to download new episodes of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews every Tuesday. You can get it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day good. Phone charge to 100% good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. 
Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.